Welcome to part two of The Lost Colony, America's Greatest Unsolved Mystery. Part two, Missing Persons. Let me get you up to date on where we are. In part one, we covered the arrival of 115 colonists to Roanoke Island, North Carolina in 1587 to begin a new colony for England in America. Although a relief ship was promised within months, none came. And when a ship finally did arrive in 1590, the settlement had been abandoned with the words Croatoan clearly carved into the walls of the palisade that surrounded the now empty fort and settlement. The fate of the colonists has been shrouded in mystery for over 400 years, but many organizations are working to bring their story to light. One of those organizations is the Lost Colony Center for Science and Research, which is comprised of a working team of archaeologists, scientists, and researchers. We contacted Fred Willard, director for the Lost Colony Center for Science and Research in North Carolina, and they are eager to fill you in on the progress that's being made in the search for clues to the outcome of the Lost Colony. That full interview is included as part two of this episode. As we begin our show, a special thanks to our terrific sponsor, Lord Timepieces. It's that big event time of year for a lot of people. Weddings, graduations, Mother's Day, Father's Day. And for all of these special times, we like to give the perfect gift that represents quality and the fact that this person means something special to us. I'll give you an example. For my dad, if he were here, I'd give him the Lord Solitude Black Gold. He would like the tan leather strap and the classic watch face. And I would thank him for the special times teaching me fly fishing and taking me to baseball games. Those were days, hours, minutes, I will never forget. For my son and daughter, as they move through life, I want them to make the most of every precious minute and cherish their time on earth. For him, the bolt gold. For her, the classic pink. Lord timepieces are made in London, England. They ship free worldwide, and they're top-quality timepieces that look good, feel great, and add style to your look wherever you go. People notice a Lord timepiece. One big reason for their huge growth over the past year is the fact that these watches offer top engineering and classic design at a very reasonable price due to the fact that they're only sold online and no middlemen are involved. Compare Lord with any $400 watches you find on the market now and they're the same quality. Top notch. I wear one and it gets comments all the time. Go to www.lord timepieces.com that's l-o-r-d-t-i-m-e-p-i-e-c-e-s.com and put 1001 in the promo code box at checkout and save 10 percent now you'll be giving someone a very special gift and supporting 1001 at the same time i placed a link in the show notes to remind you and i'll give you another reminder at the end of the episode now back to our show in part one, we introduced the story of the Dare Stones, giving you both sides of the story, including the report by investigative journalist Boyden Sparks, working for the Saturday Evening Post. His three-year investigation came to the conclusion that all the stones were false, including the first court stone found by Hammond. But there's a lot of research going on right now that suggests that that first stone might be genuine. The History Channel covered that angle recently, and our interview with guests Fred and Catherine Willard who work with the History Channel on a number of projects related to the Lost Colony, share that opinion, and will give you their side of the story in part two of this episode. 
As to the fate of the colonists, there are a number of theories out there. When Captain John Smith arrived on the James River in Virginia with the Jamestown colonists in 1607, 20 years after John White's colony disappeared many hours south of that location, his group had been tasked with, among other things, finding out what had happened to the missing colonists of Roanoke Island. According to Smith's later writings, which are compiled in his book called A General History of Virginia. Smith was captured by Powhatan's tribe that first winter of 1608, and during his time with that tribe, Smith was told by Powhatan that whites were living with one of his tribes, the Chesapeans, but that Powhatan had ordered these whites killed upon the sighting of the three ships that brought the Jamestown colonists. One report by the Jamestown colonists given during an upriver expedition on the James River soon after their arrival in 1607, claimed that a white boy had been spotted playing in one of the many Indian villages lining the river, placing at least one white person on the James River between present-day Jamestown and Richmond in the 20 years since the first English arrived on the coast of present-day North Carolina, approximately 150 miles to the south. Some researchers believe that the whites Powhatan had ordered killed might have belonged to the earlier 1585-86 expedition to Roanoke Island, which left 15 men behind, and not the lost colony. The biggest argument for the remnants of the lost colony not having settled in Virginia is one, the 10 days walking distance from North Carolina's Roanoke Island and their settlement, number two, the presence of very hostile tribes under the influence of Powhatan in the Southern Virginia area, and three, the fact that the colony would have had to desert their friendly allies, the Croatan, which were centered in the area or region surrounding their new settlement in North Carolina. The next theory advocates that the 115 colonists, now grown to 117 with the birth of two children, climbed aboard the pinnace and tried to make it back to England. The pinnace was a stout sailing ship, but could only hold a portion of their number. It also provided the only easy means of transporting their buildings and materials upriver to a new location should they need to evacuate the settlement. So it was unlikely that anyone would agree to a small group taking the pinnace unless it was done by force, and that remains a possible outcome for a portion of the colonists, but an unlikely one. Other theories postulate that the colonists were killed by disease or Indians, but no grave sites have been found on Roanoke Island that connect to the lost colonists. So if that happened, and there is no doubt that disease did take a heavy toll on them as did warring tribes, it happened at various points inland, and researchers are closing in on that now. Most researchers are searching for traces of the colonists about 50 miles inland from their original forded settlement on Roanoke Island, which is near present-day Manteo. There are two ways we're going to present you with pieces to this mystery. One, to provide some very compelling but still circumstantial evidence that a large number of the colonists survived, despite the ravages of warring tribes, and that we have oral traditions and names to back that up. We will also provide you with archaeological evidence that at least some of the colonists lived with the Croatan tribe and on at least two locations inland. One, which we'll call the Chowan River site, being almost 50 miles due west of the Roanoke Island settlement at the confluence of the Chowan River and Salmon Creek in what is present-day Bertie County, North Carolina, south of Elizabeth City. And location two, which we'll call Beachland, which is at the southern end of the Alligator River, about 50 miles southwest of their original Roanoke settlement, 
and near the borders of Dare County, Terrell County, and Hyde County, and between the Albemarle and Pimlico Sounds. That area is actually a huge 500,000-acre island of swamp and trees, firmly in friendly Croatan territory, and much more easily defensible against warring tribes. A perfect place for allies of the Croatan to establish a new settlement. Chief Manio was smart enough to know that an alliance with the well-weaponized English would mean power and protection for his people. And the English, knowing the value of a strong alliance, did all they could to promote the relationship, officially proclaiming Mantio lord of the region to all who would hear. And his enemies heard. Maps of the southeast North Carolina region showing tribal locations from the times of the early expeditions in 1585 to 1608, showing the hostile Secatan tribe dominating that region gradually changed in the years after 1587 as the Secotans, their numbers peeled away by warring and disease, gave ground to the Croatan tribe, whose power and influence was nurtured by the English. The maps, when put together in chronological order and sometimes even overlaid, provide an early clue to the English colonists' survival, and not only their survival, but their exact location. In an article titled Hidden Maps, Hidden Cities, which you can find at the Lost Colony Center for Science and Research website at www.lost-colony.com. You'll find a well-researched report on new information gleaned from old maps. Remember, too, in Part 1 we discussed Sir Walter Raleigh's vested interest in all these expeditions to this part of the New World, the bark of the sassafras tree, an interest that, at a market price averaging 1,500 pounds per ton, and a return of ten times his investment per boatload, he and his fellow investors in England were quite interested in keeping a secret, lest competitors discover what he was up to and flood the market, an outcome he knew was inevitable but wanted to delay for as long as he could. Sassafras was, at the time, the best-known means to a cure for syphilis, a problem which has plagued all of civilization up to the 20th century. One of these maps is called the Zuniga map, which was likely drawn by Captain John Smith, who had received training in cartography prior to his 1607 Jamestown adventure. And this map showed the location of English settlements in the Alligator River area, as well as the location of copper mines in Secotan territory. How did Smith know? From Jamestown in Virginia, he sent a two-man expedition in the company of a friendly Paspahay chief upriver and then overland and southward, to where they found the English settlement down in North Carolina, about 50 miles west of the deserted Roanoke Island settlement. So Smith knew where those colonists were. No doubt he communicated this to his captain, Christopher Newport, who was guiding ships back and forth from England, ships full of replacement colonists and supplies headed westward, and no doubt, to some degree, Sassafras, heading eastward. I haven't looked at Newport's writings, but one of the original colonists named Edward Maria Wingfield a guy who really resented John Smith, but that's a story for another day, listed in his journal that Newport's ship, upon leaving, was bound for Croatan. Now, with all this great research coming forward from the Lost Colony Research Center and others, we can really start to question why Sir Walter Raleigh kept saying they couldn't get a relief expedition into the Lost Colony. Ships were being caught in storms, that the Lost Colony was a huge mystery, that he had no idea where it went, and on and on. When actually, according to a new explosive theory brought forward by the Lost Colony Center for Science and Research, he knew damn well they were there. 
And we'll let Fred and Catherine fill you in on that theory during their interview at the end of this episode. All their research, including that of letters from Raleigh appointees and co-investors Richard Hakelet and Thomas Harriet, are carefully footnoted and clearly indicate land patents at Beachland completed in 1588, one year or less after White left his fledgling colony, as well as a host of references to newly discovered yet unnamed, in quotes, rich commodities and apothecaries and drugs, end quote, as Ralph Lane wrote to investor Richard Hakelet during his 1585 voyage to North Carolina's shores, which preceded that of the new colony, and accomplished turning the Secotans into enemies. From this point on, we're following the theory that the colonists were absorbed into the Croatan tribe, and written accounts, as well as oral tradition, tend to bear that out. Explorer-surveyor John Lawson wrote that the Hatteras natives on Croatan, quote, tell us that several of their ancestors were white people and could talk in a book, as we do, the truth of which is confirmed by gray eyes being found frequently among these Indians, and no others. The late Irish historian David Beers Quinn was probably our most knowledgeable scholar on the Roanoke colony. He devoted his career to the study of the colonization of America. Quinn's theory, developed after decades of studying many such accounts, is that the colonists abandoned Croatoan on the Outer Banks and separated into two groups. One group peacefully assimilated into the Carolina tribes to the west, and the other group went north to live with the friendly Chesapeake, reasoning that Virginia was the most likely place to which any future English colonists might come. From Smith's report, we know that many who went north ultimately were killed at the command of Powhatan but the fate of those who went to the Carolina mainland is less clear. Quinn's theory is the best available based on historical study and needs only archaeological and genealogical evidence to back it up. Fortunately, both are forthcoming, sort of. There is archaeological evidence that the colonists may have lived for a time on Croatoan, though it's not conclusive. Alongside artifacts of the Croatan natives, a gold ring was found bearing the family crest of the Kendall family, and there was a master Kendall in the original Roanoke colony. However, two English copper farthings were also found on Croatoan, but they were not produced until the 1670s, nearly a century too late to have belonged to anyone who was in the colonies at the time of Roanoke. The DNA evidence supporting Quinn's theory may prove to be more revealing. Several different groups throughout the United States are currently analyzing DNA test results looking for clues to whether the colonists' genes survive today. Native populations at this time were quite small, and so it's more than likely that intermarriage would leave a substantial genetic footprint. In an article published in 2005 in the Journal of Genetic Genealogy, researcher Roberta Estes gave a thorough rundown of what's known so far, and unfortunately, the strongest point made is that there is insufficient data. You can make a strong case by matching names, but it's not irrefutable proof. For instance, let's say your last name matches that of a member of the Lost Colony. Your DNA is run through a database, including that of many of the Indians in North Carolina who are participating in the DNA project. You may show a relation to these Indians, who may also share your name, but it doesn't prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that you're related to one of the original Lost Colonists. In my book, it's close enough, providing I know that my great-great was at that fort in 1587, that his surname is now well-known in a certain North Carolina tribe that was known to be associated with the colonists, 
I would say that's proof enough. But researchers and scientists are held to a higher degree of scrutiny, and for them, solid proof is needed. At this point, I would share some of the most interesting breadcrumbs, as Fred Willard calls them, or clues to the survival of the lost colony. An anthropology report in 1916 discovered the remnants of the Machapungo Croatan Indians in the Beachland Pantego area. Pew, who was on the original colonist roster, was the most important surname. In the large Croatan Hatteras Matamuski Indian community at Beachland, all have English, Irish, and Scottish names. Of all these surnames, 49 have been found to be on the roster of the 1587 lost colony. We are going to try to create a timeline for you that places all these missing puzzle pieces together and allows you to experience what the members of the lost colony experienced from the time White's ships sailed off into the sunrise headed east. And I'll say it again, it's theory. In 1587, your colony is planted at Roanoke Island, North Carolina, and you're living in and around a walled settlement. You have a close friend in Chief Manteo, who your leaders trust, but you also have enemies in tribes nearby. These enemies make hunting for food difficult, and men from your settlement have been killed trying to bring in game. It is August, and Governor White has left, promising to bring back supplies. The winter passes, and the ship never comes. Many of your people are hungry. Sickness is prevalent. In the spring of 1588, no relief has come, and the decision is made to move inland. Two groups emerge, one led by those who want to merge with Manteo and the Croatan in a settlement about 50 miles southwest near the Alligator River, and another group of 24 who want to go inland directly west. The fort is dissembled and loaded onto the pinnace, and the larger of the two groups heads south toward the Alligator River location in a place called Tremanskakuk, near Lake Matamuskeet. You are with them. You wish the remaining colonists good luck. Among them is Ananias and Eleanor Dare and their infant daughter. When you arrive at this new area in Beachland, everyone is busy building homes and creating a settlement. A line of oak trees is planted to announce the entrance by path to the new colony, and the clearing of tangled vines and trees to create plantable fields begins taking place. Nearby are three Croatan villages, and Manteo has been very busy meeting with their chiefs and arranging a mutual alliance and friendship. Wells are dug and corn is planted. Over the years, deeds are filed, marriages are recorded. In the years to follow, and with only a handful of women present, the option to interbreed between Indian and English would have been necessary for the survival of the colony, and there is little doubt that they did so. The Croatan took on the customs, language, and dress of the English, who in turn adopted many Indian ways and customs. Together they fought against raiders of all stripes, one being the English, who were kidnapping settlers all along the coast for use as slaves at their sugar plantations, and competing tribes like the Secotan, who resented the Croatan alliance and the gradual loss of their once powerful territory and mines. They continued the supply of sassafras to the English colonies. Ships kept coming, and the tiny colony continued the supply of sassafras to the English colonies until the market petered out, and then it was cedar and cypress, both of which were plentiful. Smallpox struck a number of times in different generations, killing many of your fellow settlers and Indians, almost decimating the Croatan. And your group was forced by necessity to move inward till they reached the Lumber River in Robeson County, where the remainder merged with a small Siouan tribe named the Shiraz. 
Robeson County is south and west of Beachland and borders South Carolina. The Lumbee tribe was a name given to the group that you now represented, a mixture of English whites, Chiraw, and Croatan Indians. And that tribe has remained for centuries English-speaking, white in appearance, mannerisms, and customs, and possessed with the Elizabethan dialect that your early colonist forebears provided them with. Professor Stephen Weeks described them in an 1891 paper for the American Historical Society. The Croatans, Lumbees, of today claim descent from the lost colony. Their habits, disposition, and mental characteristics show traces of European and Indian ancestry. Their language is the English of 300 years ago, and their names in many cases are those borne by the original colonists. No other theory of their origin has been advanced and it is confidently believed that the one here proposed is logically and historically the best, supported as it is by external and internal evidence. If this theory is rejected, then the critic must explain in some other ways the origin of a people which, after a lapse of 300 years, show the characteristics, speak the language, and possess the family names of the second English colony planted in the Western world. In 1914, the U.S. Senate adopted a resolution authorizing an investigation to be made of the condition and tribal rights of the Indians of Robeson and adjoining counties of North Carolina, and Special Indian Agent O.M. McPherson was sent to Robeson County. He spent a great deal of time interviewing Indian families, examining pertinent literature, and doing historical research, and then produced an extensive and thorough report on both the history and existing condition of the Lumbees. He wrote, There is a tradition among these people at the present time that their ancestors were the lost colony, amalgamated with some tribe of Indians. This tradition is supported by their looks, their complexion, the color of their skin, hair, and eyes, by their manners, customs, and habits, and by the fact that while they are in part of undoubted Indian origin, they have no Indian names and no Indian language. When Governor White sailed back to England in 1587, leaving the colony behind, there were 117 settlers there with 95 different surnames, as some were married, and some were children. As counted by Macmillan, 41 of those surnames, more than 43%, including the names Dare, Cooper, Stevens, Sampson, Harvey, Howe, Cage, Chevin, Jones, Brooks, and others, were found among the Lumbees, a people living more than 200 miles away from Roanoke Island. Note the name Dare, and that brings up an interesting thought. One of them must have survived and traveled with the colony down to Beachland, and when that was abandoned, to Robeson County. The Croatan, later named Lumbees, oral history, finds the colonists leaving the original colony and headed to settle first in the Black River area of Sampson County, which is two counties closer to Roanoke Island than Robeson, their final destination. When an explorer named John Lawson wrote of his travels through the area that includes Sampson County in 1703, he wrote of meeting light-haired, gray-eyed Indians that spoke English and wanted him to teach them how to speak from a book that he carried, and telling him that their forefathers were from Roanoke. As more white settlers moved into southeastern North Carolina, it makes sense that the colonists, who were now becoming part Indian, with each succeeding generation, having survived attacks, kidnappings by both English and competing tribes, and smallpox, 
and feeling their difference from whites now in terms of skin color and Indian characteristics, were moving southwest toward isolated Robeson County, protected by dense swampland and away from what they would have considered their salvation 150 years and seven generations ago. This attitude and the isolated geography toward which they moved was the reason they were able to maintain so much of their forefathers' identity. From the years around 1650, the English began raiding coastal Carolina, taking slaves for their sugar plantations and elsewhere, and these raids began to take their toll on a number of small and large tribes, including the Tuscarora in that area. In the autumn of 1714, war broke out between the British, German, and Dutch settlers and the Tuscarora Indians in North Carolina, with some tribes allied with the British and others allied with the Tuscarora. It is told that some of our colonists fought against the Tuscarora under the leadership of Colonel Barnum, managing to return with Matamuskeet Indian slaves that they worked on their farms. Others preferring to be left alone to farm along a 50-mile stretch of the Lumber River in Robeson County did not join either side. The Tuscarora, allied with the Cori, Matamuskeet, Cotecne, and Machapungo tribes, attacked settlements along the Roanoke, Noose, and Trent rivers, killing hundreds of settlers, including some key colonial figures, among them John Lawson in the colonial capital of Bath. Accounts of torture and brutality committed by the Indians were rampant. One notable testimony coming from German settler Baron von Grafenried, who had been taken prisoner by the Tuscarora and witnessed white women being impaled on stakes while 80 of their infants were slaughtered in the area of New Bern, North Carolina. In the years following the Tuscarora War, many Indians were removed from their homes, grants and deeds were challenged, and the slow process of relegating the Indian to second and third class citizens began. The descendants of the colonists, now considered to be Croatan Indians, knew that their fight with the English could only be won in courts, and for decades they did all they could to maintain their identity and hang on to the land deeds that had been granted to them by King George II. The first recorded deed came in 1732, granted to Henry Berry and James Lowry, two leading men of the tribe, and was located on Lowry Swamp, east of the Lumbee River in the present county of Hoke. A subsequent grant followed for James Lowry in 1738, this time on very tillable land adjacent to his first property. According to oral tradition, there were other deeds issued before that time, four in the name of White and two in the name of Smith. I've seen no more information than that to fill in the obvious blanks, but the names White and Smith were on the colonists' roster. Also, according to oral tradition, some of the original colonists joined the Tuscarora and accompanied them as they migrated to Canada after the Tuscarora War returning to the homelands they had left centuries before, to the area just north of Niagara Falls. Others ventured westward toward the mountains, following that same urge that had brought them west from England. Those who stayed were to suffer all the injustices their former English and Scotch brothers could bring to bear, beginning with a state law in 1804 that described all Indians as being free persons of color, which relegated them to the status of free Negroes, a classic and ironic reversal of fortune. Between 1804 and 1835, a succession of laws preventing Negroes, mulattoes, and free persons of color, now the colonists' descendants, prevented them from any number of activities afforded white people, such as 
playing cards and dice, loping anywhere in public, carrying a gun, intermarrying, etc., etc., all subject to fines. In 1835, North Carolina called in a constitutional convention through which white North Carolina society deliberated the restructuring of North Carolina government and society with considerations given to questions of race, class, and geographic region. The specter of slave revolts and of colored violence played no small part in these considerations. The Nat Turner Rebellion in Virginia had demoralized the white middle class and plantation-owning classes of the entire South. North Carolina had the largest percentage of free persons of color in the South thanks to their adding Indians to that class. For whites, such a large population of free non-whites posed a constant threat. Such fears instilled within the psyche of white Southerners a determination to control all non-white groups within the landscape and body politic of the state. Ultimately, North Carolina's efforts at social reformation would result in the reclassification of the social and political status of all non-whites. The descendants of the English colonists, now far removed from the privileges their all-white ancestors had known in England, were now at the bottom end of the social scale. As free people of color, they soon found themselves deprived of their political and civil privileges, rights which they had enjoyed for almost two generations. Simultaneously, the United States initiated its policy of Indian removal in the southeast, but did not include Robeson County's Indians. As a group, they rarely appear in the historical record before 1835. No government treaties were signed between the Lumbee and the United States. Members of this group only appear officially as individuals, and the way in which they are listed obfuscates their identity as Indians, consigning themselves to the remoteness of Robeson County swamps official and even unofficial contact with non-Lumbies seems almost non-existent. The disenfranchisement of Lumbies along racial lines intensified the mood from previously one of caution, sometimes indifference, and discreet suspicion, to that of overt hostility. On the occasion of his son's murder by a local white farmer, George Lowry said, We were a free people long before the white men came to our land. Our tribe lived in Roanoke in Virginia. When the English came in our land, we treated them kindly. One of our men went to England in an English ship and saw the great country. There is the white man's blood in these veins as well as that of the Indian. In order to be great like the English, we took the white man's religion and laws. Here are our young men killed by a white man, and we get no justice, and that in a land where we were always free. Lumbees also suffered egregiously during this period from what were termed tied mule incidents. These incidents occurred when a neighboring white farmer tied his mule on an Indian's land or let his own cattle graze upon Indian's land. The white farmer would then file a complaint for theft with the authorities, who promptly arrested the Indian farmer. Such incidents were invariably mitigated by the Indian agreeing to pay some kind of fine or giving up a portion of his land or agreeing to a term of labor service with the wronged white farmer. Henry Barry Lowry was born in 1845 to Allen and Mary Cumbo Lowry in the Hopewell community in Robeson County, North Carolina. His father owned a successful 350-acre mixed-use farm in the county and had applied and received his first land grant from King Henry II, as previously mentioned, in the name of himself and his close friend, 
Henry Berry, who was a lost colony descendant and who was related to Lowry through marriage, probably to Lowry's sister. Henry Barry Lowry was one of 12 children described as multiracial or free people of color due to Lowry's marriage to a Tuscarora Indian. Early in the Civil War, the North Carolina military turned to forced labor to construct defenses. Free people of color, which included any man related to Indians, could not carry guns, so were put on work gangs with free blacks. Several Lowry cousins, excluded from military service because they were free men of color, also called free blacks, had been conscripted to help build Fort Fisher near Wilmington. Other non-whites resorted to lying out or hiding in the region's swamps to avoid being rounded up by the Confederate Home Guard and forced to work for low wages. On December 21, 1864, James P. Barnes, a neighbor of Alan Lowry, allowed his hogs to roam onto Lowry's property and then accused him of stealing the hogs in hopes of getting a decision from the court that would grant him a part of Lowry's property in return. There was a tremendous amount of tension in the area, aggravated regularly by whites who felt they could take advantage of the Indians now that the state had removed their rights to attend white schools or carry firearms, and given whites preferential treatment in local court cases involving non-whites. Lowry's son ended up killing Barnes. In January of 1865, Henry Barry Lowry also killed James Brantley Harris, a conscription officer, for allegedly mistreating the women of the Lowry family. In March of 1865, the Home Guard, acting on a tip, searched his father Alan Lowry's home and found firearms, which free people of color had been forbidden to own since after 1831 and Nat Turner's rebellion. The Home Guard convened a kangaroo court, convicted Alan Lowry and his son William, and executed them, forcing them to dig their own graves and then shooting them in the back of the head. Henry Berry was reportedly watching from the bushes. Soon he was leading a gang in committing a series of robberies and murders against the men who were involved in the murder of his father and brother, as well as anyone else who was making life difficult for the Indians. This string of robberies, killings, and terror continued for seven years until 1872. The attempts to capture the gang members became known as the Lowry War. The Lowry gang consisted of Henry Lowry, his brothers Stephen and Thomas, two cousins, Calvin and Henderson Oxendine, two of his brothers-in-law, two escaped slaves, a white man, and two other men of unknown relation. Lowry's gang continued its actions into Reconstruction, past the Civil War. Republican Governor William Woods Holden outlawed Lowry and his men in 1869 and offered a $12,000 reward for their capture, dead or alive. Henry Barry Lowry responded with more revenge killings, swearing to kill the 30 men who stood by while his father and brother were shot to death. On December 7, 1865, Barry married Rhoda Strong. Arrested at his wedding, Lowry escaped from jail by filing his way through the jail's bars. Lowry's band opposed the post-war democratic power structure, which worked to reassert its political dominance and white supremacy in the South. The Lowry gang robbed and killed numerous people of this establishment. Because of this, they gained the sympathy of the non-white population of Robeson County. The authorities were unable to stop the Lowry gang, largely because of this support. In February of 1872, 
Shortly after a raid in which he robbed the local sheriff's safe of more than $28,000, Henry Barry Lowry disappeared. It is claimed that he accidentally shot himself while cleaning his double-barrel shotgun. As with many folk heroes, the death of Lowry was disputed. He was reportedly seen at a funeral several years later. Without his leadership, every member of the gang except two were subsequently captured or killed. The Lumbee Indians voted until 1838 and then were deprived of the ballot until 1868, being nearly 20 years before the time when they were set apart by the state as separate people. The injustices done them by the laws of 1835 forced nearly all of the older men and women into involuntary ignorance. The law of 1835 closed to these people every avenue of hope and said in effect that they must submit to their being absorbed by the Negro race, and we know how tough their plight was. Their white neighbors withdrew many privileges which had previously been granted them. It must be borne in mind that this intolerable condition existed for over 50 years. It is found that the Lumbee Indians have, to a remarkable degree, that sense of direction which is peculiar to all types of Indians and which is so acute as to be almost an instinct. Justice is but too often spoken of as tardy, and surely the case of the Lumbee Indians of North Carolina is one which proves the accuracy of this general statement. It required 369 years for them to come to their own again. Since 1885, they have been named by the state of North Carolina as Croatans, or just Indians, or Cherokee Indians, and at last, the Lumbee Indians of North Carolina, by a national recantation done in 1956 by Congress. The Lumbee Indians are not on the reservation. They have never been any expense to the federal government whatsoever. In Robeson County through the 1960s, there were separate schools for the Indians, the whites, and the Negroes. And no teacher of different blood could teach. The Indian schools needed an Indian teacher, white schools a white teacher, Negro schools a black teacher. In 1940, the Robeson County all-white grand jury deplored employing white teachers in Indian schools by reason they had found the white teachers had socialized freely with certain members of the Indian race. The men, women, and children of the lost colony were never lost. They live on today, and one by one, through the coming years, will start to get DNA matches to their living relatives today, who have been scattered by the winds of time all over the globe. Their blood lives on in thousands of families, including American Indian tribes like that of the North Carolina Lumbee, once the Croatan. We'll give the Lumbee and their lost colony ancestors a final salute with this story. On the evening of January 18, 1958, the KKK was having a rally organized by Grand Dragon James W. Catfish Cole. In reaction to the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in 1954 calling for public school desegregation, the revived Ku Klux Klan undertook a campaign of terrorist actions throughout the American South designed to intimidate blacks from demanding even greater civil rights. Grand Dragon James Catfish Cole led the South Carolina-based Knights of the KKK. In 1956, the mixed-race inhabitants of Robeson County, North Carolina, who had unsuccessfully claimed Indian heritage under various tribal identities, succeeded in achieving limited federal recognition under the Lumbee label. The Lumbee campaign for federal recognition attracted the attention and outrage of Catfish Cole, who considered the so-called Lumbee a mongrel race 
of largely African origin. Cole worried that the Lumbee, if successful in portraying themselves as Indians, would next attempt to pass as whites, further blurring racial lines in the segregated South. In 1957, Cole began a campaign of harassment designed to intimidate the Lumbee. He hoped to use his campaign against the Lumbee to build up the Klan organization in North Carolina. He believed that the Lumbee, marginalized even with the Indian community, would easily be frightened. Declaring war, Cole told the newspapers, There's about 30,000 half-breeds up in Robeson County, and we're going to have some cross-burnings and scare them up. On January 13, 1958, Klansmen burned a cross on the lawn of a Lumbee woman in the town of St. Paul's, North Carolina, as a warning because she was dating a white man. Emboldened, he gave a strong speech denouncing the loose morals of Lumbee women and warning that venereal disease could be spread to the white population by their noted promiscuity. The Klan then struck at Lumbee men, burning a cross at a tavern frequented by the Lumbee. Cole denounced the Lumbee men as lazy, drunken, and prone to criminal activity. The Klan then burned a cross on the lawn of a Lumbee family who had moved into a white neighborhood as a final warning for the Lumbee to remain in their areas. Believing that he had the Lumbee on the run, he announced plans for a Klan rally on January 18, 1958, near the small town of Maxton, intended to put the Indians in their place to end race mixing. His speeches denouncing mongrelization of the races provoked anger among the Lumbee. Lumbee Indian Sanford Locklear, Simeon Oxendine, a World War II veteran, and Neil Lowry were leaders of the Lumbee group who arranged a little welcoming committee for the KKK that night. On the night of the rally, 50 to 100 Klansmen arrived at the private field near Hayes Pond, which Cole had leased from a sympathetic farmer. Cole set up the public address system and erected the cross, all under the illumination of a single light bulb. Before Cole could finish the arrangements, over 500 Lumbee men, many armed with rocks, sticks, and firearms, appeared and encircled the assembled Klansmen. First, the Lumbee shot out the one light, darkening the field and panicking the Klansmen. Then the Lumbee began yelling and attacked, firing shots at the Klansmen, several of whom briefly returned fire, but to no avail. Four Klansmen were wounded in the exchange of gunfire. The remaining Klansmen fled the scene, leaving their family members, the public address system, unlit cross, and various clan regalia behind. Cole reportedly left his wife behind and escaped through a nearby swamp. Afterward, the Lumbee celebrated by holding up the abandoned KKK banner. Many local, state, and national newspapers covered the event, capturing photos of the tribe members burning the regalia and dancing around an open fire. A posse of Robeson County deputies, led by the sheriff, arrived on the scene, dispersing the Lumbee with tear gas grenades and terminating the celebration. In the days after the confrontation, a defiant Cole called the Lumbee lawless mongrels and denounced local law enforcement for failing to intervene earlier in the confrontation. Public opinion, however, turned against Cole. North Carolina Governor Luther Hodges denounced the Klan in a press statement. Cole was prosecuted, convicted, and served a two-year sentence for inciting a riot. With Cole imprisoned, the Klan ceased activities in Robeson County. The Lumbee now celebrate the anniversary of the disrupted Klan rally, which they call the Battle of Hayes Pond, as a holiday. I have no idea if any of the Lumbee there were related to the original colonists, but my guess is they would have been proud. 
When I think of the lost colony, I think of John White, of his many beautiful illustrations of native life in the Americas, of all the high hopes, and of the anguish he felt at sea, having left his daughter at Roanoke for more than three years. I think of how helpless he must have felt, being unable to find ships to return, or having what ships he could get, unable to weather storms when he was able to set sail for the lost colony. I think of how it must have been to find the word Croatoan carved into the tree and on the fort, of his doubtless desperation to continue, and the frustration of having to return to England when he was so close to finding them. Where were Eleanor White, her husband, and White's infant granddaughter? Were they living safely with the Croatans, or had they succumbed to disease or starvation or attack? He never knew, and we'll never really know either. In this story, we've shared a lot of theory and much of the oral tradition surrounding the colonists' fate. We may find better evidence of what happened to the colony as a whole, and find the remains of a settlement here and there, but the small personal tragedies will always remain unaccountable, and while we search for tangible evidence, never forget that the best history is in the telling. And now, as promised, we're going to take you to the interview with Fred and Catherine Willard of the Lost Colony Center for Science and Research, and they're going to fill you in on the rest of the story. Hi, this is Fred Willard, and I'd like to say hello to John and the 1001 Heroes listeners. And I'm here with uh, my wife, uh, Catherine Sug Willard, and we're with the Lost Colony Center for Science and Research. I'm the director, and Catherine uh, is uh, my assistant director of the research center. We come from very humble beginnings. We started as a support society for a discovery we made about 35 years ago of the Croatan site in Buxton, North Carolina. And uh, we partnered with uh, Dr. David Phelps, who has since passed away, a very famous uh, coastal archaeologist, and started the funding for the uh, excavations for the Croatan site, which we continued for 10 years. And it was... Um, turned out to be the most exciting project I've ever been involved with. The story of the lost colony is the most exciting unsolved mystery in North America, and uh, I had no intentions that when I started uh, to pursue archaeology career, um, but I'm just finishing my 16th year at East Carolina with uh, degrees in archaeology, a double major in history, and a minor of a multidiscipline study of the Sir Walter Raleigh Roanoke voyages. Fred, what are your major goals for the center, and how do you go about accomplishing them day by day? The research center's number one object for being in existence is to fund uh, research, excavations, and education related to the Croatan Indians who we believed the um, colonists absorbed we basically think the colonists went native uh, with the Croatan Indians. So those subjects are uh, all fodder for our research, and we funded about 20 projects over the past 30 years. One of the biggest projects we've uh, undertaken was we did a major symposium about nine years ago on research of funding for DNA studies. I'm an archaeologist, not a biological anthropologists, so we're primarily a funding source. 
And what we're attempting to do is to find living descendants of the Croatan Hatteras Indians who, um, in our opinion, merged in with the colonists. And that would be the best way to find living descendants of the colonists. Not going to be practical to try to locate living descendants back in England because um, all of the voyages to North America involved the same three villages back in England, and there's no way to be able to delineate whether they came from Plymouth, Maryland, or Massachusetts, or Virginia. So we're attempting to match to skeletal remains that Dr. Phelps and I excavated at the Croatan site and see if we can get a match to a probable uh, Native American Croatan Indian. And uh, it gets more complicated than that. We have to find a sample that um, passed before 1492 because there were thousands of shipwrecks on the Outer Banks and there may have been European contamination early. So our research design, with the help of Dr. Phelps, we put this together. Um, the purest and uh, direct contact we could make with living descendants today would be to match the original Croatan Indians from the Outer Banks. Fred, as you know, we covered the issue of the authenticity of the Dare Stones in Episode 1. And I was left pretty much with the impression that most or all of the stones were fake. The only standout there would be stone number one. I was hoping you could go into detail on that. Tell us where you are with that and what's your opinion on the stones with regard to their authenticity. Well, in answer to your question, in regard to the Dare Stones, we've been involved on the front line of research on the Eleanor Dare Stone uh, going on almost 15 years now. And we did everything we could to attempt to give the Dare Stone authenticity, but very honestly, once that stone was moved from its original context, that's an impossibility at this point. So what we attempted to do was to try to do everything we could to disprove the stone. And after years of research and study, including four hours of filming with the History Channel and major financial support from the History Channel, we've come to the conclusion we cannot disprove that the stone is authentic. However, the 43 stones that were found down in Georgia, um, there's absolutely no question they are a fraud. The perpetrator of the uh, forgery uh, actually admitted it. And we, we are now convinced if the stone is authentic, it is the single most important and the only artifact ever found directly related to the lost colony. And based on that premise, why would you not follow all the leads that you could to attempt to confirm that the stone is authentic. And of course, the information that's on the stone would give you the research design to confirm if you were able to follow the leads that are on the stone itself. On the stone, it says that Virginia and Ananias have gone hither to heaven and are buried four miles east of where you would find this stone. And of course, Virginia would be her daughter, Virginia Dare, and Ananias would be Eleanor Dare's husband, and Eleanor Dare would have been the daughter of the governor of the colony and the famous artist that drew all the drawings of the Roanoke voyages of 1585. So we have spent the last three years attempting to find 
the location of the gravesite four miles east of where the Eleanor Dare Stone was found. And we are making uh, quite a bit of headway, but um, it's like everything else with this mystery. No matter what you find, all the some result usually is you got ten more questions to answer. I can go so far as the Eleanor Dare Stone to say that the chances of somebody perpetrating a hoax uh, is almost uh, eliminated in that the information that's found on the stone is corroborated from about nine different sources. And that doesn't mean that somebody couldn't have found those sources. But the thing that's the most important thing, um, if he perpetrated a hoax and laid the stone down where it was found, supposedly found by Mr. Hammond, the chances of him putting that stone in a major Indian village, quite a uh, coincidence. And we do know that um, 24 of the colonists were captured and taken to Ridino, and they were put upon by the priest and slaughtered or murdered. And a Indian chief by the name of Gapalakan stepped in and saved seven and sent them to his Indian village to beat his copper on the Chowan. And where that stone was found, we have confirmed a major capital city of the Wepamec Indians called Waratan. And thousands and thousands of artifacts have been retrieved in less than four hours of excavation. We have the writings of Strakey and Captain John Smith regarding reports of the survivors on the Chowan River. What have Diggs told us regarding colonist settlements there? We know from the narratives the English were in that area, and specifically a very important discovery of a patch in the map of John White's 1585 rendition of the uh, Roanoke Voyages, his manuscript A map. There was a patch in it which was recently been discovered showing a fortification, English fortification, which was only three miles away. And English pottery was found at that site and at our Warriton site, although uh, early dating is not confirmed at this time. The the English pottery is uh, quite early, but um, uh, we're not able to scientifically nail it to the date of the carving of the Eleanor Dare Stone, if it's authentic. If you could, Fred, can you please take us back to 1587? The colony has talked White into returning four supplies, and he's promised to bring a return ship within three months. What happened after he left? Well, in answer to the question of what happened when Governor White sailed away, it's very evident that they moved in mass. They took the buildings down and uh, took all of the um, important parts to rebuild a new city with them, and that would indicate that they... Uh, carried large amounts of materials in a boat, which would also indicate that they did not go very far. John White specifically said um, when he left them, they intended to move 50 miles into the main. And our most recent research is related to five potential theories of what could have happened, but we think most of the breadcrumbs or facts in the narratives and related information is uh, it's becoming overwhelming that they probably moved into the beach land area, which is the mainland of Dare County, Terrell County, and Hyde County 
in a place in the historic maps called Beachland, and the uh, preponderance of the information is it's just overwhelming at, the, at this time compared to the other four theories. What evidence do you have that the colonists moved to Beachland? The research we have at Beachland is um, started almost 20 years ago with myself and my partner named Phil McMullen, who did his master thesis on this subject, is that there is lots of evidence of a very large group of enculturated Indians um, mixed with Europeans in the Beachland area. And after almost uh, 100 field trips into that area, the evidence that we found so far is a areas of uh, large plantation of farmland with almost a hundred chestnut trees planted in a straight line that were harvested about a hundred years ago and reported. We found uh, 22 full cup oak trees planted in a straight line which were used by the Indians to uh, produce large acorns and we found hand dug wells underneath these trees and remnants of graves in the area in addition, we found references to narratives of uh, wooden coffins found on this same plantation. It would be the Payne Plantation, where most of our research is centered. And uh, the Indians had moved there probably 100 years after the original settlement and were harvesting one of the largest white cedar plantations in North America. And these became very wealthy Indians and were selling the uh, uh, cedar to the Caribbean, primarily to the island of Barbados. And um, the uh, coffins that were dug up had a, a very strong connection to the Elizabethan area because carved on the coffins were Elizabethan moline crosses, which were only used for a very short period of time during Elizabeth's reign, and it seems um, unlikely that two or three hundred years after the fact, you would find Elizabethan moline Protestant crosses carved on coffins unless they had come from the original source of uh, the Elizabethan area. Also, these Indians are noted for their enculturation not being like any other Indians. They spoke English, they could read they had uh, major connections with the Barbados, and we found a um, influx from Barbados marrying in with these Indians. And the famous author John Lawson even indicated that these Indians were very, very uh, wealthy. They uh, spoke perfect English. They could read. He mentioned that they had blue eyes, and they also had stories amongst them that they were related to the Roanoke voyages, and the uh, main comment he made, they could speak, speak from the book or they could read. The um, reason for the Indians being in this beachland area, again, was they were harvesting large amounts of white cedar, which went to Barbados, and it became so profitable, they hand-dug a ditch a mile and a half up to the ridge. The main ridge of beachland is extremely fertile soil, although the area around it is swampland, but there are creeks and bodies of water leading directly into the main um, uh, mineral soil of beachland. And this is very rich soil and is uh, not swampland at all. 
and it grows uh, 165 bushels of corn per acre. That was the, but the primary reason for them being there was to harvest the cedar. What major challenges did you have trying to follow the trail of the colonists with their assimilation to the Croatan tribe? Um, in answer to the question of how we follow the possible trail of the colonists into the Indian population, is you, you have to remember there is a black period that we cannot penetrate back to, and it's uh, up, uh, just about 100 years after the colony was settled. But um, when we first started the research, every history book in North Carolina claimed that the Hatteras Croatian Indians did not survive they were extinct, and there would be no living descendants ever found. And that put us on a uh, research of the courthouses and the court documents of North Carolina, and we discovered over 200 court records of deeds um, from the Croatan Hatteras Indians. And then we started the genealogy, and what we found is after 15 years of research, there's almost 6,000 living descendants, and they never moved away. They're still there. Even though the pool of the surnames are spread all over the United States and even into Europe, the uh, entire population still lives basically right on the original Indian reservation in Hyde County is where most of them live, but also East Lake Gumneck, uh, Kilkenny, and uh, Roanoke Island. And the surnames are really interesting in that uh, we developed the 100 most important surnames of the surviving Hatteras Indians starting uh, in 1770. The first 12 we identified were of the Elks family, and they were listed as the kings of the Croatan Hatteras Indians. And we found uh, almost 60 living descendants uh, living in a small community called Chakawinity, all within a half a mile of each other at another Indian site on the Chicot Creek. And since that time, we have developed of the 100 most important surnames, unexplainably, 49 are on the roster of the Lost Colony. And this is, uh, again, not absolute proof, but, I mean, the chances of this being just a random happening are almost improbable. The most important names found so far are Gibbs, Brooks, Pierce, Payne, Ambrose, Sanderling, Collins, Cooper, Jackson, Barry. And of the Gibbs surname, there's almost uh, 600 living descendants in Hyde County today. And uh, Gibbs is listed on the roster. Brooks is the single most important Croatan connection that ended up with the Lumbee Indians. There's 22 Brooks listed and uh, identified as Lumbee Indians, and most probably they all came from the Beachland area. Payne is the main plantation of our research, and that surname ended up with living descendants uh, within the past 50 years, uh, still living in Beachland, we interviewed um, a 96-year-old woman that walked eight miles out and eight miles back to go to school from Beachland every single day. And uh, she's directly related to the Payne family. Ambrose uh, 
there's at least 10 living in East Lake today, and their oral history is they were descendants of the lost colony. Collins is um, one of the wealthiest uh, families in the Roanoke area. Mr. Collins donated um, 4,000 acres to Dare County to be used for a uh, bird refuge, and uh, the original uh, Beachland Patton, where all the cedar was, is called the Jackson Patton. And we uh, uh, do a lot of research from helicopters, and there's still probably a billion dollars worth of white cedar uh, back in the uh, backlands of uh, Beachland even today. Fred, how important is genealogy, the search for names and ancestors, to your research? In answer to the question about um, contacts we get and the interviews we do, we get about 20 a week of phone calls uh, calling in, and their main interest is, uh, are we or are we not Indian? Uh, We were told by our grandparents that there were Indians in our lineage, but we don't know who who we really are, and we want that question answered. And that's how we developed the surnames. The genealogy is very important to the DNA studies, and we have successfully, with five surnames, gone from the records that were obtainable just after the black period where there were no records that were Indians. We've been able to put that genealogy together to living descendants today. Uh, with no break in the genealogy from 2017 back to 1660s, the earliest we have it with the name of Cooper. We would encourage any listeners that are um, hearing this narrative of uh, what our discoveries are, um, if you're interested in your lineage and heritage and whether you possibly have Indian ancestors, to go on our website and see if your surname is listed. Um the website is www.lost-colony.com, and uh, I recommend that you actually look in the area for the connections for our people and actually personally call me, Fred Willard, and the phone number and the address and the web and the email uh, information is all there, but I actually prefer a direct phone call because there's going to be a major interview, and uh, basically we would have to email each other back and forth a hundred times to accomplish that. It's just much easier just to get on a phone and spend an hour with you. And uh, these phone calls that are coming in are helping me as much as I'm helping the people find out who they really are, because I'm able to connect up uh, people of like surnames that have done a portion of the research that possibly the individual calling me doesn't have. So, the uh, again, the DNA is very, very important, but without the genealogy and the connections back to coastal North Carolina, doesn't really answer all the questions that the genealogy would, would give you, specifically coastal North Carolina, in and around the Washington, uh, Manteo, Plymouth, and Hyde County area is um, our primary subjects that we're looking for. I was amazed upon reading one of the articles on your website titled Conspiracy, Spies, Secrets, and Lies that basically, as the theory goes, positions the fate of the colonists in Sir Walter Raleigh's hands, suggesting that he knew why the colonists abandoned the settlement, where they went, yet kept quiet about it, and said they had no word or clue 
where they went. Can you elaborate on that? Um, in answer to your question, the um, research paper called Conspiracy Spies, Secrets, and Lies is a very green piece of research in that it is emerging and it is getting a tremendous amount of attention. But at this point, it is a little bit speculative. We are totally convinced the premise in the paper will be totally vetted within the next couple of years with some additional research. The conspiracy part is related to the mastermind behind the whole Roanoke voyages, which very little people know about, and that's Sir Francis Washington, who is the Secretary of State. And he is a um, master, the equivalent of the master CIA agent with um, misinformation, hiding information on maps, or hiding the maps, or sending misinformation about the location of the colony. Specifically, uh, research is indicating that they had found a very valuable commodity and they never intended to go to Chesapeake Bay, but had actually been harvesting a secret commodity of sassafras even before the 1585 colony left when the one of the main ships left the 1585 colony. When they got back to England, they unloaded a large amount of sassafras. My uh, wife, Catherine, this has been her pet project, and uh, I'll let her tell the story. This is my wife, Catherine Sug Willard. Thank you, John. I can't tell you what a thrill it is to be on your show. As my husband stated earlier in this program, the conspiracy in regards to the sassafras is very exciting research for me and for a lot of other people, I'm sure, who love a good mystery and who love conspiracy theories. Now, let me state first and foremost that this research in regards to the Sassafras conspiracy is preliminary, so it is speculative at this point. However, there has been too much evidence uncovered by my husband, myself, and our various colleagues for this to be just dismissed as just a conspiracy theory as nothing else. This merits further investigation, and I will provide various examples on why this should be taken seriously and not just laughed off. One piece of evidence that we have uncovered is the famous white 1585 map, as Fred mentioned earlier in the program. If you look at the Alligator River section of the map, you will note a particular village named Tromanskikuk. Another map that we are studying, made three years later by John White and a colleague of his, Theodore DeBry, you look at the same section portrayed on the map there, and you will note that the village has been moved to the opposite side of the river. Why would expert map makers such an obvious error unless it was deliberate? Another map that we are researching, the Farrar map, provides a possible motive for the Sassafras conspiracy. This map, the Farrar map, also shows the Alligator River area. If you look again at the area where Tremonsky Cook is, you will note that there is a tree drawn there and it is labeled sassafras. 
From what I have studied with my husband, Sir Walter Raleigh and his investors stood to make the equivalent of millions of dollars from harvesting the sassafras and shipping it back to England, but only if the information was kept top secret. Because, as another colleague of theirs, Thomas Harriet, he stated in various letters about secret commodities in a secret location and how they had to safeguard the information about the commodity, otherwise well-willers not to the good, a.k.a. cling jumpers, would raid the place and get all the money for themselves. So, how do you safeguard information and basically code it or make it disappear? Enter the man in charge, Sir Francis Walsingham. So with your theory, was it Walsingham pulling the strings? Was it Raleigh? Or was it an equal combination of the two? Well, in answer to your question, John, Sir Francis Walsingham was the Secretary of State of England at the time of Queen Elizabeth's reign. He was basically the equivalent of the CIA chief. He was her protector, and he was the power behind the throne. And while Sir Walter Raleigh was the organizer of the Roanoke Ventures, it was Walsingham who made it happen. And he was a master of information and misinformation, such as Tremonsky Cook being put in the wrong place when it clearly did not belong there. It's perfectly understandable how there could be some confusion about what was going on at the time of the settlement because John White wrote in his diary about how they were supposed, quote-unquote, to go to Chesapeake and how their pilot, Simon Fernandez, just basically said, no, get off my ship, and dumped them and headed back to England. Fernandez was working for Walsingham. Sir Francis Walsingham was his boss. Why would Fernandez do something that would basically get him fired, if not killed? Especially since the colony was Walsingham's pet project, as well as Raleigh's. Our theory is that Walsingham was pulling the strings behind the scenes, as he often did back in those days. And he had White make false documents about how they were supposed to go to Chesapeake, when in actuality, their goal was to secure the sassafras trees, which Raleigh took initiative in, in making Manteo lord and chief of Tasmansky, Pus, and Roanoke. They put Manteo in charge of where the sassafras growing, and Fernandez, coincidentally, unquote, put the colony right where the money crop was. It was a very elaborate ruse, but one that Sir Francis Walsingham had the knowledge and the know-how and the means to pull off. And White also stated in his diary multiple times, as I believe my husband stated earlier, that they planned to move 50 miles into the mainland. He knew from the start that they weren't going to be staying put where Francis Walsingham had Fernandez leave them. Croatan was the starting line. Where they ended up is the finish line. Your theory sounds credible. I just have a different opinion about White based on the fact that he complained to the captain regarding the captains trying to leave them off at Roanoke Island and White said he had wanted to go to the Chesapeake Bay. I think White was used as a pawn 
to convince the 115 colonists to go, but I don't think they let him in on what their final destination would be. And the powers that be made it very difficult for him to make a return trip. Yes, it was a huge cover-up that went amazingly all the way up to the queen herself. She couldn't provide money for the voyages herself because the men were all pirates as well as colonists, and if they got caught and she footed the bill, so she fixed it so that the investors made the money themselves and she just watched. And if they got caught then, she could say, oh, I don't know anything about it. I never gave any orders with it. You can do with them what you want. So, motive right there to make sure that there had to be a lot of hush-hush going on. You can't exactly accuse the queen of a cover-up because then she can turn right around and accuse you of treason. And if you do that... One of our colleagues and our predecessor, David Beers Quinn, he was the first to get an inkling of what was going on at the time when he wrote in Roanoke Voyages... This is a direct quote now. It is only now that we are beginning to get an inkling of what we have not hitherto been told about the Roanoke voyages. Materials to supplement the narratives in Hayclute have been very scanty, and they are still inadequate in many respects. But those from the Spanish archives printed by Miss Wright and supplemented in these volumes drew through a substantial amount of new light on these ventures, even though they raise at least as many problems as they answer. So, we're not the first people to stumble upon this cover-up. It was our predecessor and Fred's mentor, Dr. David Beers Quinn, who lit the torch for us. We're just now carrying it for him in his stead. We all know that during the late 1500s, the Spanish Armada threatened to invade England, and as a result, the Queen put a stop to all shipping. So when John White tried to return to the lost colony, he couldn't. However, it is very interesting to note that while history says that for three years, no ships got to America from England, at least 238 ships made the trip. And they were all investors sent by Raleigh and Walsingham. And while they all came back with the same excuse, we got lost, we had bad weather, our anchors broke. They all came back with cargo loads of sassafras full to the top. Kind of makes you go, hmm, doesn't it? And these are just the ones that we know about. So if one is happenstance, twice as coincidence, what does 238 make? Finally, while Raleigh was in the Tower of London for basically shooting off his mouth to the king after the Queen Elizabeth died, he wrote in his will, believing that he was going to be killed, that his men out on a voyage sent just before he was arrested should be paid in wages, not goods captured by piracy. How could he afford to do such a thing unless he was raking it in, even then, from sassafras shipments from Roanoke? And Fred Deer, I believe you have more relevant information pertaining to this? Raleigh stated several times that um, to plunder the Spanish ships was very, very risky. And why should they do that when if they would 
send the voyage out to get sassafras, they could make 10 times their investment. There's a lot of documentation that millions and millions of dollars in today's money was being transported back to England and sold. And Raleigh was the only person that had the patent and the rights to do this from his uh, patent from Queen Elizabeth. Fred and Catherine, thank you very much. Are there any new historical tidbits regarding Lost Colony that you want to share with us today? One of the uh, brand new pieces of research that has not been published yet is uh, no single survivor of the colony has ever been found. But one of my researchers, we believe, have just found Mantio living near the Boston area at the age of about 65. And he is taken on a the name of Jack Straw. For some reason, he's hiding his name. And we actually even went to Boston and found the location where his house was. And we're hoping to do future uh, expeditions up there. This is the most exciting new news we have, that no single survivor of the colony has ever been located past 1587, except possibly the uh, Dare Stone, if it is authentic. Fred and Catherine, thank you so much. I know our fans are going to be looking forward to any new information that you can give us, and we'll keep everybody posted via Facebook and and through our shows as to what's going on with your research. But thank you again. It's very much appreciated. Thank you, John, for allowing us to be here on your show and to your 1,001 heroes. We would like to stay uh, connected with you, and uh, as uh, the research develops, uh, come back and uh, bring your audiences up to date on the uh, new and exciting uh, research that's taking place. This research is very exciting and something I hadn't mentioned before, but uh, we find most interesting is how competitive it is amongst the historians and archaeologists. If you saw the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's uh, even more intense than what they showed in the movie there, the, especially the professors and academians uh, really don't like the independents like us finding and showing them up. And it is quite uh, interesting, and I'm very, very competitive, so I love that portion of the element. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. A special thanks to our sponsor, Lord Timepieces, which offers you the opportunity to give someone special the gift of time. Just go to lordtimepieces.com and put 1001 in the promo code box at checkout, and you'll save 10% and be supporting our show. Get one for yourself, too. Check out the Bolt Collection. It's awesome. Also, we invite you to join our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and 1001 Stories for the Road, which will be appearing soon as we are rebranding America's Best of Times as we are rebranding America's Best of Times to fit within the 1001 network. And that new show will move to Sunday nights at 8 p.m. with our other 1001 shows in just a few weeks. So heads up on that. You can find our shows at iTunes, at podbay.fm, and anywhere good podcasts are found. Our show's website is 1001storiespodcast.com and visit us at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. And you iTunes listeners, we do appreciate those reviews at iTunes. And all of you, 
please share our show with a friend. Thank you. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. (laughs) 